Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening and welcome to the Murder Bucket Podcast. Thank you for joining me on this hot Tuesday evening. Well, it's hot here where I live. It might not be hot where you are. Anyways, on Tuesdays right now here at the Murder Bucket Podcast, we are in a series called The Cold Case Road Trip. And I've explained on other episodes what this means But if tonight is your first time listening, let me tell you what it is. Over the course of 30 episodes, we travel to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories, covering two cold cases each week. We only have about eight episodes, including tonight's, left, so I would encourage you to go back to episode 20, where it all started. Tonight is stop 41 and 42, and we are traveling to New York and Maryland. But first, as always, we're going to do our week-slash-weekend recap. Now, I know I haven't asked on social media what your week-slash-weekend recap has been, but to be honest with you, I have felt slightly discouraged when I only get a couple of responses on each social media platform. Not saying that those who do respond's information is invalid, but it does get a little discouraging week after week when very few people respond. I will continue to share what my week slash weekend recap has been if you want me to. If you don't like it, just let me know or you can just skip forward to when we start talking about the case. My week-slash-weekend recap is going to be extremely brief because I have the memory of a goldfish and have no idea what I did last week. I know I went to work. I know I ate. I know I hung out with my husband and my baby. But I don't remember anything else. The only thing that I really remember, and I'm not sure if I mentioned this last Tuesday is that our daughter started to take a few unassisted steps on her own. She turned 18 months on the 21st, and I know it's a little delayed of her walking, but a few of my friends and I have a theory that because she is considered a COVID baby and wasn't around other children her age very often, she doesn't really know what to do. Her pediatrician says that she's fine, everything is good, she's happy with her progress, and soon she should be walking completely unassisted. Because right now she walks with just holding like one of our fingers and that's about it. Which is actually really good for her considering the beginning of last week she wasn't doing that at all. Saturday I made a really delicious cake. It was called a Texas sheet bunt cake, which I'm assuming most of you know what a bunt cake pan is, where you cook the cake essentially upside down. Um, It was made from box cake, 
but just from like the box cake powder and you added a whole bunch of ingredients to it. And then the icing was made from cocoa powder and powdered sugar and pecans. And I have to say, it was delicious. Even though it didn't 100% come out of the pan like it was supposed to, it was still really good. And I could cover up that mistake with the icing. Sunday after church, we went out to eat with a few of our friends for lunch. Yesterday was obviously Monday. And today it's Tuesday. And you're here with me. Now, let me stop babbling because there are a few of you out there that don't appreciate it and would rather just hear about the cases. So, here's our first case tonight. Stop 41, New York. 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker was born in 1995 to an alcoholic and cocaine-addicted mother. He spent his early childhood bouncing from foster home to foster home until he was adopted by Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald in 2002. Because of the difficult situation that he was born into, he suffered from reactive attachment disorder. This made him prone to violent and random outbursts, which created a problem in developing relationships with other people. In an article on TalkMurder.com, the author John Perry writes that he was considered to be very intelligent, but was a troubled young child. His siblings were apparently afraid of him, especially during his outburst. The first red flag that pops up in my book was the house in Greenwich, New York, that he was living at with his adoptive parents and siblings that had no running water, no toilet, and used a generator for their electricity. All of the children in the home were homeschooled, and according to an article on missingchildren.wiki.org, everyone in the house slept in the same room. On sites.psu.edu, it is possible that the living conditions may have had a negative impact on his emotional well-being, which caused him to lash out. Now, how did a family and a house like this get approved by the state of New York or an adoption agency? I have several of my own friends going through the adoption process in different states, and I know that there are rigorous background checks and home inspections. So was someone paid under the table to get this child out of foster care? A week prior to Jalik's disappearance, some articles state that Jocelyn called a crisis hotline stating that he had become unmanageable. TalkMurder.com states that it was in fact Stephen who called the hotline. Whomever it was that called went on to state that they were afraid of him and they no longer wanted him in their home and that they wanted to quote-unquote unadopt him and send him back to foster care. The reversal of this adoption was not possible, and it was suggested that they try respite care. This means to provide short-term relief for primary caregivers. The parents gave Jalik no access to therapy, medication, or mental health services. So, of course, he was unmanageable. They didn't try to help him. All they wanted to do was give him away. (laughs) 
Jalique was sent to the home of Elaine and Tom Pearson, who were licensed foster care parents. They provided the respite care for him in the past. He stayed at their home until November 1st of 2007 and would sit back home. His family was planning on sending him to another respite care home the next day. Stephen and Jalik spent the night at Stephen's father's home together so that he could be watched over while he was going through this difficult transition. The next morning, Stephen woke up to a note that was left by Jalik. It read, Dear everybody, I'm sorry for everything. I won't be a bother anymore. Goodbye. Remember Elaine and Tom Pearson, the couple who provided respite care for him for a week? Well, they claim that the letter Stephen found was not a goodbye note, but actually a letter that he was forced to write by his father as homework. He was told to write notes apologizing to the people he had harmed. Tom states that he saw him writing one, but didn't actually read it. Stephen took the note to the police station at around 9 a.m. and reported him missing. There was an extensive search done of the area near the family's home immediately following the report and for several months after, but no indication of Jalik's whereabouts were ever found. Several days later, police announced that they think that he could have met with foul play because it was highly unlikely that a child of his age could survive on his own. Neither Stephen nor Jocelyn helped very much in the search for their missing son. Both of his parents suggested to the police that Jalik might be living with an African-American family or gang because he's always considered himself black rather than biracial and desperately wanted to live with other African-Americans. A week after his disappearance, they held a vigil at a church in Salem, and then two weeks later, they held another one at a church in Greenwich. Some people witnessed Stephen putting up posters in Albany and then seen him removing several posters that were put up by the task force. During their interrogations with the police, both Stephen and Jocelyn maintained their innocence. Jocelyn took a polygraph test while Stephen refused. I was unable to find any information as to what the results were from Jocelyn's test. In January of 2008, the police named Stephen as a person of interest. Cell phone records that were obtained by the police showed that he was driving around Greenwich at midnight when he claimed to have been sleeping. CCTV footage captured his minivan on several occasions that evening so his argument about him being home all evening was thrown out of the window. Investigators appealed for information on Stephen's whereabouts on November 1st and November 2nd. They conducted a search on his father's home in February of 2008, where Jalik was staying on the evening that he disappeared. They took a computer to try and determine if it was used to write the alleged goodbye letter but they weren't able to prove or disprove this theory. Several days after the search at Stephen's father's home, the parents filed a lawsuit against the police department, claiming that they had been illegally detained and the search was improper. 
Before Jalik's disappearance, his maternal grandmother, Barbara Reilly, filed for custody of him but was denied. In 2008, she was charged with burglarizing the family's home but pleaded not guilty. In February of 2016, skull fragments were found in a Kosaki swamp near the Hudson River. This opened a new interest in the case. The area was searched in a grid to look for additional bones and evidence. The search did turn up pieces of clothing, and Barbara drove from her home in Troy to the remote part of eastern Greene County where the skull was found. Investigators believe that the skull had been exposed to the elements for between 5 to 10 years. That did fit the timeline for Jalik. In May of 2017, the police made a statement that the skull found did not belong to Jalik. Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell states in an article on poststar.com, I'm disappointed because I would love to say yes and start to move forward with some closure. He goes on to make a comment regarding the fact that he learned of the exam results via the media. He says, somebody didn't have the common courtesy to pick up the phone. I haven't seen the examination. I haven't heard from the chief medical examiner's office. Bottom line is, they sent it to the chief medical examiner's office because they are the world experts at getting DNA from these bone fragments. If anybody could do it, they could do it. At the 10-year anniversary of Jalik's disappearance, former police senior investigator Thomas Aiken believed that there was sufficient evidence to file charges and convict the person or persons responsible for him going missing. Officer Aiken retired in 2013, but stated that assigning the case to a prosecutor with time to delve into the case could bring justice to Jalik. He is quoted in an article on poststar.com in 2018 saying, There is a lot there that the public has never heard. The attorney for the parents, Jeffrey McMorris, states in an article on timesunion.com, You're dealing with a family whose child is gone. They don't want to give up the idea that he's going to come home. I think there's a certain reality, but they are still hopeful. I think the police came to their conclusions in a short period of time. Barbara Reilly stated in a media interview that Stephen had anger management issues and was going to counseling. Jocelyn made him move out for a brief period in 2007 because of his aggressive behavior toward the children. Barbara witnessed one incident where he got so angry with Jalik that he dragged him outside and repeatedly dunked him in a nearby creek. Jocelyn apparently made Stephen do Jalik's chores for over a month. Jalik's grandparents and foster families continue to fight for answers and advocate for him, trying to keep his case alive. At the time of his disappearance, Jalik was last seen wearing a bright yellow fleece pullover, a gray t-shirt with a dragon on the front, blue jeans, and black high-top sneakers. If you have any information regarding Jalik's disappearance, I encourage you to contact the Greenwich Village Police Department. Before we move on to the next stop, 
Let's take a moment to listen to tonight's sponsor. Based on the Evidence is a mother-son true crime podcast that mixes humor with heavy topics. It may seem tricky to you and me, but they pull it off nicely. This mom and son are hashtag relationship goals. I love their interaction together, and the personal stories are as entertaining to listen to as a true crime story they are covering. They have a great diversity of cases. I love the humor that they have here when talking about dark subjects. It makes listening to the gruesome details easier to handle. Based on the Evidence podcast is true crime with a twist. Instead of the usual cold cases, this podcast gives me so much closure. I have loved following along each episode while trying to figure out if the suspect was found guilty or innocent. You can listen to Based on the Evidence anywhere you get podcasts. And thank you to them for sponsoring tonight's episode. And we're back. Stop 42, Maryland. Catherine Ann Sesnick was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on November 17, 1942. She was the oldest of four children born to Joseph and Ann Sesnick. Her father's parents immigrated from Yugoslavia as well as her mother's father. Her mother's mom immigrated from Austria. She graduated valedictorian of her class at St. Augustine High School in 1960. At the age of 18, she moved to Baltimore, Maryland to join the School Sisters of Notre Dame, also known as SSND. This is a worldwide religious institute of Roman Catholic sisters. Wikipedia.com says that they serve as teachers, accountants, nurses, administrators, therapists, social workers, pastoral ministers, social justice advocates, and more. She took her final vows on July 21, 1967, and her professed name was Sister Jonita. Archbishop Keough High School for Girls opened its doors in 1965 on Canton Avenue in Baltimore. Kathy started her teaching career here. She taught English literature and oversaw the drama department. In the fall of 1969, she requested permission to take a sabbatical from the order. Her request was granted, and she moved into the Carriage House Apartments with Sister Helen Phillips in the Edmondson Village area of Baltimore. She then started to teach at Western High School to explore a new teaching option as a civilian teacher, which was offered by the SSND. On the evening of November 7, 1969, Kathy left her apartment to go purchase an engagement gift for her sister and future brother-in-law in the Edmondson Village Shopping Center. It's unknown if that gift was ever purchased. What we do know is Kathy cashed a $255 paycheck and purchased a box of buns at Mooley's Bakery. Early the following morning, Sister Helen noticed that Kathy had not returned. She grew extremely concerned and contacted Reverend Peter McKeon 
and Reverend Gerard Cobe and asked them to come to the apartment. The three of them contacted the City of Baltimore Police to report her missing. At 4.40 a.m., Reverend McKeon and Reverend Cobe found Kathy's green 1970 Maverick unlocked, muddy, and illegally parked across from the apartment complex. The police searched the area for her body as soon as they arrived. They questioned residents of the apartment complex, and many of them stated that they saw Kathy in her car around 8.30 that evening and that her vehicle was then parked illegally roughly two hours later. None of them saw anyone else in the vehicle with her. On sarahjwinter.net, the author states that there was a claim that another vehicle similar to Kathy's pulled in behind her and she'd follow them out of the lot. This claim was never verified. Kathy's vehicle was towed to a crime lab to be processed. The police found the box of buns along with leaves and twigs. A twig was shoved in the turn signal lever and another one was found in the car's radio antenna. The driver's seat had been adjusted too far back for Kathy to have been the last person to drive it. They also found a broken umbrella in the back seat. 35 police officers, along with five search dogs, scoured a 14-block area of southwest Baltimore from dawn to dusk on November 9th. They knocked on doors, searched alleyways, and deserted buildings. Several of them, along with the dogs, went through rain-soaked parked areas. They were aided by many civilian searchers. On November 10th, Captain John Barnhold Jr., who is the head of the city's homicide squad, was quoted in an article on BaltimoreSun.com saying, There was no evidence of foul play. We could find no evidence of violence of any kind. The police made a statement that they had no reason to believe that Kathy had been kidnapped. They were trying to piece together what might have happened during the two-hour window between the time that she was seen in her vehicle to the time her vehicle was spotted parked illegally. They searched several additional locations over the next two months, but came up with nothing. On January 3, 1970, a hunter and his son found a body in a makeshift landfill in a remote area of Lansdowne. Detective Bud Rumor and several members of the M-Squad were the first to arrive on the scene. In an article on InsideBaltimore.org, Detective Rumor is quoted saying, It was snowing when we got to the dump and cold as a son of a bitch. The body was pretty much covered by snow, but it didn't take us long to figure out who she was. When I walked up on that dump, I said, Hello, Kathy Sesnick. She was lying on her back on the slope of a little hill, with her purse and one shoe a foot away. We worked the crime scene all day. We called in the medical examiner and asked for an autopsy right away. We spent probably four to five hours out there, and it was nearly dark when we finally sent her body to the morgue. 
Police believe she was either carried to the area or forced to walk there because it would have been near impossible for a car to be driven to the area where her body was found. The autopsy revealed that Kathy died of a blunt force trauma to one side of her head, along with a blow that left a round hole in the back of her skull. Between the years of 1970 and 1977, her case was very active. Detectives conducted several interviews and polygraphs. In 1992, an allegation of sexual abuse was made against Reverend Joseph Maskell by two former female students of Archbishop Keogh High School. He was removed from his position as pastor of Holy Cross Church in South Baltimore by the Archdiocese of Baltimore following these allegations. He spent six months at the psychiatric hospital called Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut. He then returned to Baltimore after having an evaluation that found no psychological or sexual abnormalities. In August of 1993, he was named pastor of the St. Augustines in Elkridge after the investigation by the archdiocese did not corroborate sexual abuse allegations. In the spring of 1994, another student told Baltimore County Police that Reverend Maskell sexually abused her and took her to see Kathy's body weeks before she was discovered. They went on to say that there was another man that she met in the priest's office that claimed to have beaten Kathy to death because she knew of the alleged sexual molestation. There were several inconsistencies in this student's story. Several different articles state that this student was Jean Weiner. On July 31, 1994, Reverend Maskell left St. Augustine's to seek therapy in the face of the mounting allegations of sexual abuse. At this time, over a dozen women alleged that they were abused by him while they were students at Archbishop Keogh during the late 1960s and 1970s. Teresa Lancaster and Jean Weiner filed a $40 million lawsuit against him, the school, gynecologist Christian Richter, the SSND, the Archdiocese of Baltimore, and Archbishop William Keeler in August of 1994. Their case was dismissed due to the statute of limitations running out. They, of course, appealed the verdict. Unfortunately, the Maryland Court of Appeals upheld their decision deeming their case meritless. Cardinal William Keeler permanently revoked Reverend Maskell's priestly duties in February of 1995. He then decided to move to Ireland to flee the allegations. He lived there for some time before returning to the Baltimore area in 1998. Reverend Maskell died on May 7, 2001 in St. Joseph's Nursing Home after suffering a stroke at the age of 62. He insisted that he was innocent of any sexual allegations until the day he died. It is well known that the Archdiocese of Baltimore 
paid out settlements totaling almost half a million dollars to 16 victims beginning in 2011. The case of Kathy Sesnick was reassigned to the Baltimore County Police Department in 2016 due to several key officers retiring. This prompted new interviews and further investigations. Reverend Maskell's body was exhumed in February of 2017 to see whether his DNA matched the DNA that was found at the crime scene. Baltimore County police found that the DNA profile did not match that of Reverend Maskell. Police spokeswoman Elise Armacost stated that the DNA discovery does not exclude Reverend Maskell from being a suspect in this case. Kathy's murder served as the basis for the Netflix docuseries called The Keepers. It was released on May 19, 2017. Filmmaker Ryan White tells TheRap.com, I'm seeing that The Keepers is having a positive impact, not just in the sense that more victims have come forward, but it is also having a positive impact in showing people that they aren't alone and that it's possible to move forward and confront your painful past. The docuseries features interviews with women who were Kathy's students, with many of those stating that they were sexually abused by Reverend Maskell and others. Two days before the docuseries aired on Netflix, the Archdiocese of Baltimore released the following statement that is posted on their website. Dear Friends in Christ, I write to call your attention to an upcoming online docuseries released by Netflix concerning the unsolved murder in 1969 of Sister Catherine Sesnick, a nun and former teacher at the former Archbishop Keogh High School in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. The series will also reportedly focus on the question of whether Sister Sesnick's murder involved Joseph Maskell, a priest of the Archdiocese, who was accused of sexually abusing numerous students while serving as chaplain at Archbishop Keogh. Some believe that Sister Sesnick may have been murdered because she was aware of the abuse and was going to report it to the authorities. I write today to provide you with some facts and background information that may or may not be included in the documentary. First, it is important to remember that prevention of child abuse and pastoral outreach to those affected are the cornerstones of the Archdiocese's actions and policies. We encourage anyone with information about child sexual abuse to contact appropriate authorities. The Archdiocese is committed to promoting healing for survivors of sexual abuse. As a pastoral measure, the Church has provided counseling assistance and direct financial assistance to victims of Maskell. In addition, the Archdiocese has offered personal meetings and apologies to any survivor who has come forward and continues to be in communication with survivors to discuss ways of promoting their healing and an understanding of the effects of their abuse. Their abuse was horribly tragic and the Archdiocese remains deeply saddened and regretful that someone representing the church could have perpetrated such crimes against children.
The Archdiocese has also reached out to the family of Sister Kathy to offer support. The tragic events discussed in this docuseries have been the subject of both Archdiocesan disclosures and numerous local and national news stories. The Archdiocesan website has links to some of those previous articles and statements going back to 1969 that provide more detail about these events. The Netflix series is the latest to deal with them. The Archdiocese first became aware of an allegation of abuse by Maskell in 1992, more than 20 years after the abuse occurred. At that time, the adult survivor and her attorney were encouraged to report the matter to civil authorities and Maskell was removed from ministry and referred for evaluation and treatment. He denied the allegation, underwent months of evaluation and treatment, and was returned to ministry in 1993 after the Archdiocese was unable to corroborate the allegation of sexual abuse after its own investigation and conversations with attorneys representing the individual who initially came forward. When subsequent individuals came forward to accuse Maskell in 1994, he was permanently prohibited from public ministry. The Archdiocese made additional reports and has cooperated with authorities subsequent at that time. Further, the Archdiocese held a public meeting at St. Augustine's Parish in Elkridge, where Maskell was serving at the time of his removal from ministry. It was attended by more than 100 people and covered by the media regarding the allocations against Maskell. The allegations were once again made public, along with his assignments, during the Archdiocese's 2002 disclosure of all known clergymen who have been credibly accused of sexually abusing a child. Maskell died in 2001. The Archdiocese Independent Child Abuse Review Board, now chaired by the retired Judge Joseph Murphy, has repeatedly reviewed the Archdiocese's response to the allegations involving Maskell since the initial allegation was made. Regarding the tragic murder of Sister Kathy, the Archdiocese offered a reward in 1994 for anyone with information leading to the conviction of her killer. The first suggestion to the Archdiocese of Baltimore that Maskell might have been involved in Sister Kathy's death was made in 1994. Both the police and the media interviewed Maskell in 1994 regarding the nun's death and the allegations of sexual abuse. The Archdiocese has no record of Sister Kathy contacting the Archdiocese about Maskell. No criminal charges were ever filed in connection with Sister Kathy's death or the allegations of abuse. I pray this information is helpful to you. Additional information, including a set of frequently asked questions, is available here on the Archdiocese of Baltimore's website. The website contains Archdiocese policies and other information about the Church's critically important efforts to protect children through screening, training, education, reporting, and cooperation with civil authorities, investigation, zero tolerance, pastoral outreach, and oversight. 
please join me in praying for those impacted by the events discussed in this production, for the victims of sexual abuse, and for our church and its efforts to protect children and to bring healing and comfort to survivors. Sincerely, Most Reverend William Laurie, Archbishop of Baltimore. Archbishop Keough High School merged with Seton High School in 1988. It was then called Seton Keough High School. In October of 2016, the Archdiocese of Baltimore announced that the school would close in June of 2017. The decision was reached as a result of an 18-month study of 22 Catholic schools in and around Baltimore. Former students Gemma Hotkins and Abby Scobb have dedicated their retirement to finding the identity of Kathy's killer. Gemma is quoted on PlatoCast.com stating, Sister Kathy was the best teacher I have ever had. She was kind and compassionate. I learned a lot about life from her. I learned to appreciate literature, and when I met her, I was only 15 or 16 years old, and she was 26. Through their investigations, they believe Kathy threatened to expose the abuse and Reverend Maskell either murdered her or got her murdered. Gemma confirmed that there was a massive police inaction in Kathy's case because some policemen were also involved in the abuse. Gemma and Abby continue with their investigation to find Kathy's killer. Gemma states again on PlatoCast.com, My pursuit to find the truth was definitely worth it. I want to see the abusers being charged and will find out who murdered Sister Kathy. Some of them may be dead, but some are not. I will fight for Sister Kathy Sesnick until she gets justice. I highly encourage you to watch the docuseries The Keepers on Netflix. If you have any information regarding the murder of Catherine Sesnick, I encourage you to contact the Baltimore County Police Department. A random fact is my husband works for a water treatment company and he services the cooling towers at the Archdiocese of Baltimore once a quarter. Thank you for taking the time to listen to tonight's episode. Please enjoy this promo from my friends at A Few Bad Apples podcast before you go. fact. Over 700 people have been killed by the hands of the police just this year alone. I'm Catherine Sheffield, host of the weekly podcast, A Few Bad Apples. Each week, I unravel true stories of victims whose lives have been affected by bad apple officers of the law. I bring this relevant conversation into the public spotlight because it's a way to provoke change and reform. Not all officers are bad, and in fact, I highlight a positive story at the end of every episode to balance the spectrum. A Few Bad Apples is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. 
I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.